Well, Father, we are just so grateful that we can gather together and just sing praises to you. We think about uh, how we are celebrating the, the incarnation, the arrival of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of a promise made long ago, and the fruit of your commitment to love your people. As we talk about love and the nature of love, I pray that this will be one that will just stir us to a greater affection for you as we understand the magnitude of affection that you have for us. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, this uh, Christmas is actually going to be Becky and I's 20th Christmas. Not, yes, 20 years. And so there's something about having a kid go away to college where you start to feel old. Right? I think we're more in touch with our age. You know, I turned 47 last week. I'm a real man times seven because it's 47. But when we got married, we, we stood in front of uh, our church in Burbank, California, and we, we said the, the following wedding vows. Right? I take you to be my lawfully wedded, in my case, wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live, right? And we took the traditional wedding vows because we're traditional people and we understood that marriage is an institution that was invented by God and these, these reflect it. Uh, but there has been a, a trend in this last generation to to alter wedding vows, to shape the wedding vows to the customer taste, so to speak. And so one of the most famous alterations is changing as long as we both shall live to as long as we both shall love. Oh, I like how you guys are flummoxed by that. That's actually a good sign. But it kind of goes with really a, a modern notion uh, of love, kind of a changing understanding of how we see love. In fact, I read a, an article where a, a therapist defends this alteration of the wedding vows to as long as we both shall love, and this is what she says. For better is simple enough, but what about for worse? Does that mean you and your partner can treat each other unkindly until death do you part? And that would be acceptable? For richer is certainly easier, but what about for poorer? Does this mean that your partner can deplete your savings accounts or rack up huge credit card bills while the other stands by and with no say? And finally, in health is ideal, but what about in sickness? If you or your partner developed a psychological disorder or even a brain injury that caused abusive behavior, does that mean that you just have to deal with it? Commitment is a... It's a liability, right? What if this goes wrong? And what if this goes wrong? And, and so there's almost the, this fear that if you bind yourself to one person for life, what happens if that person changes? What happens if that person does not reciprocate? reciprocate? What, what happens if you change? And really the, the modern meaning of life, the purpose of life can be defined, uh, really defined in two words, self-fulfillment self-actualization, becoming the better you, to become true to yourself, to explore who you are. And so when they talk about the language of love, it's about finding your soulmate, never having to say you're, you're sorry or you complete me, right? There's a therapeutic element where you love this person as they help you to become the true you. 
And so if you were to ask this culture what is love and what is the, the highest love, I mean, what would they say? They'd probably say uh, romantic love. Romantic love is almost the source of an identity. Who you love says a lot about who you are. Uh, the common phrase is love is love, and, and you can't get in the way or interfere with people loving who they want to love, how they want to love them. And so we have a society where we read about love, and that's immediately what comes to mind. Now, what's interesting is when you look at other ancient cultures, they've always had a category of romantic love. You know, that the strong feelings, the emotions, the mystery that comes along with it. In fact, in, uh, in ancient Greece, in Greek literature, where we have our New Testament language, there's four kinds of loves. Uh, the first one would be eros, the erotic love, the romantic love, the love between lovers. Agape, right? You all know that as good Christians. The unconditional love. You have phileo, the, the love of friendship. And then you have storge, which is the love of affection, like what a mother would have towards her child. And so they had all these loves on the menu. If you were to ask them, what is your what is the greatest love? Or if you were to ask our culture, what is the greatest love? The answer would be eros, the love of romance. But the Bible actually gives a, a different answer. If you were to ask God, what is the greatest love? My contention to you is that it would be hesed love. Now, I had a rare event last week when I mentioned the word hesed. I had three different people ask me at different times, how do you spell hesed? That was up on the screen behind me. Before those of you listening at home, the answer is H-E-S-E-D. Now you can dominate Bible Scrabble, okay? <laughs> I suspect, given the people who asked, that's part of the reason. <laughs> that's part of the reason. And it's, uh, it's translated steadfast love or loyal love. It's a, it's a, it's a phrase that's hard to define, but we see it displayed in one of the great female monologues in history. In fact, if you haven't done so, turn to Ruth chapter 1. Find Judges, skip over, it's right before 1 Samuel. In Ruth chapter 1, Ruth says the following to Naomi, who's trying to send her away. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more so if anything, also if anything but death parts me from you. This is one of the most beautiful expressions of woman to woman love in all of literature. This is threatening. It's countercultural. It is all rooted in this concept of Hesed love, which is a love of loyal, steadfast commitment. Hesed love is love without an exit ramp. Right? You're on the turnpike, there's no turning back for 25 miles. And as I kind of reflected on this picture of Hesed love, there's really three elements 
that really stand out about Hesed love. Hesed love is loyal. Hesed love is asexual. And Hesed love is optimal. It is the greatest love. If you were to ask what is the greatest love of all, it's not learning to love yourself. It's learning to love others at the expense of yourself. It is a loyal commitment. It's the type of love that God has for His people, and it's the type of love that God's people are to have for each other. And so this is what we're going to do today. We are going to, to survey this passage, to understand this concept of Hesed love, and then we're going to take some time to circle back and really reflect on it. So are you guys at Ruth chapter 1? Yeah, let's kind of start at verse 4. Okay, remember, Elimelech just passed away in the land of Moab, and then further tragedy happens. Verse 4, these took, this is Malon and Kilan, the sons of Elimelech, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth, and they lived about 10 years. Now remember, Elimelech left the promised land, because he wanted to provide a better life for his sons. There was a famine in the land that was a discipline of the Lord. And instead of trying to lead his countrymen in repentance, he left and ran for Moab, right? The inbred hillbilly town. What good could come out of that place? And his plot to save his life cost his life. He was taken. And Naomi who is now the matriarch of the family, decides to stay, not return, and to ingratiate herself with the locals as well as sire some offspring. She has her two sons marry Moabite women. They want an heir, someone to pass the title along. And after 10 years of infertility, tragedy happens again. Verse 5. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, losing two sons in any culture at any time is unimaginably painful. But I would contend that this is a tragedy of catastrophic proportions for someone like Naomi. Uh, Paul Miller, a Christian author, cites a study of a, of a world-renowned psychologist who asked this question to his subjects. You are in a boat with your child, your spouse, and your mother. The boat is sinking, and you are the only one who can swim. Who do you save? Your spouse, your child, or your mother? Yeah, everyone's thinking, who would I save? Beck and I both have a pact. We're both going to heaven. We're saving the children, okay? And we would be in accordance with 60% of the respondents in the West. 40% said their spouse, zero their mother. Sorry, moms. <laughs> Sorry, mom. I mean, I don't know. But if you were to ask Muslim men, who would you save? 90% said they would save their mother. Isn't that interesting? Because in a Muslim household, in a very patriarchal household, the woman has no identity outside of the home. The closest relationship that she can have, embrace, and enjoy is a relationship with her son. And as you could tell by that survey, 
These sons loved their mothers. And so for Naomi to lose her two sons, I mean, she lost her, her whole world. Everything is gone. Now in verse 6, we see a, a change. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now when she left, the country was under the discipline of the Lord. There was a famine in the land, no doubt because of their disobedience. But now the fortunes have changed. The Lord had visited his people. Remember what Bethlehem means? House of bread. Well, the house of bread is getting restocked. There, there is a sign of blessing. There is some hope that things are, are going to change. And so the better life is now in the promised land. And so she has nothing left. Since, since she's lost everything, she decides to go back to her home, to her people, to her family, to live again. And in verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And so Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah are on this road. Traveling 60 miles over land is familiar territory for Naomi. She kind of knows the sights, knows the landmarks, knows where to go, knows what to expect. And, and as she's walking, her daughters-in-law are walking a road they've never walked before. They haven't been to Judah. And when they do show up at Judah, they will be outsiders. They are the Gentiles. They are Moabites. They would be radioactive to the opposite sex in Judah. The God-fearing man would not wear, marry a, a Moabite, right? Those, that would be a, a sign of, of compromise. Now, they all have this bond where they love the same men. And, of course, they're going to follow after their mother-in-law because that's kind of the, the shell of the family that they had for 10 years, right? You can understand that. But Naomi decides that it is not right for her to take those daughters those Moabite women, with her to Judah. And so in verse 8, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. Mother's house can also be mother's room. Whenever we see it in scriptures, it's always uh, associated with, with romance and love. It's, it's where the daughter would talk to their mother about boys. It would be a safe venue for two potential lovers to spend together, to talk and to converse under the oversight of, of their mother, right? She's basically saying, Orpah, Ruth, you need to go back to your mother's home and find a husband. Because for a woman in that day and age, there was only one independent profession that they could take, prostitution. It was a man's world, and to find safety and security and to even have a future, you had to do so with a husband. So you need to go back to your mother's house. Find a husband. And then she says, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And when she says, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, that word, deal kindly, that's the Hesed love. 
she is affirming that even though they were Gentiles, even though they were Moabites, even though they come from a pagan land with a pagan God, they showed Hesed love to Ruth. They were loyal, they were faithful. I mean, they're walking this road with her. And so Ruth says, may the Lord reciprocate. May he show the love that you showed me. But now I am releasing you from the obligation. You don't have to follow me. And she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you and your people. Now, this is to be expected, right? They've been together for 10 years. You don't just leave at the first chance. I mean, if you are in battle and you are wounded in the stomach and you're you're bleeding out, you might tell your, your buddy, live your life, friend. Go. Save yourself. You're not expecting the guy to say, as you wish, see you, buddy. Have a nice life. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you at least say, no, 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 no. I'll try to rescue you, right? There's, they've been together for 10 years. You don't just say, go live your life and just expect a, okay, see ya. <laughs> I thought she was going to ask me to come. The bond is too deep, but, there, but you can still see that this is kind of like a bartering custom here where she has the script even, even laid out where she knew this was going to come until she has her next argument at the ready. Verse 11. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Now, Naomi's making it very clear. Ruth Orpah, the factory is closed. The factory is closed. Now, if we assume that she got married at 15, had her two sons by the age of 20, and then those two sons got married around the age of 20, and then they had to wait 10 years, Ruth is 50. And people aged faster. It was a harder life back then. Right? The factory was closed. There is no real hope for a future for you. And even if by some miracle, Naomi could have a son this very night and conceive this very night and that he happens to be a son and then he were to wait until he was maybe 20. I mean, Ruth and Naomi, I'm sorry, Naomi, no, Ruth and Orpah would, would be outside the window as well. Right? She's basically saying, you are better off, you are better off leaving now. You will never find a husband as long as you stay with me. And then she builds on her case. And this is fascinating, verse 13. She says, Know my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. In other words, Ruth and Orpah, I am a bitter, a bitter woman. And do you know why I am bitter? Remember all those stories I told you about how God rescued Israel, how the strong, mighty arm of the Lord crushed Pharaoh, parted the Red Sea, provided for our people. Remember that mighty arm of the Lord and his great might and power? 
Well, that mighty arm from the Lord descended from heaven and slapped me around. He's taken everything from me. He's taken my husband. He's taken me from my people, my land. He has, he has taken my sons from me. She is bitter. And what's interesting is you don't really see her taking any responsibility for what she's done. She is encased and hardened by a bitter spirit. And so she's basically saying, Ruth, Orpah, get away from me. I'm cursed. I'm cursed. Why would he want to spend any more time with me? The Lord's against me, and he's against everyone. He's in my area. Get away from me. I'm cursed. Verse 14. Then they lifted their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. I mean, Orpah does the sensible thing. Why give up your future for someone who doesn't have a future? Why give up your future for someone who doesn't have a future? And there's no judgment here by the narrator. She kisses, weeps, says goodbye, and then continues to live her life. But Ruth does something very unexpected. She gives Naomi a hug, and she keeps on hugging. And it's almost as if Ruth is trying to, you know, is clinging to Naomi, and Naomi is trying to pry her away from her. And she does it by saying in verse 15, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, this is a, a theologically revealing statement that she just made. Your sister has gone back to her people and her, her gods. Now, a faithful Israelite would confess, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. There's only one God, all others are counterfeits. There's no such thing as other deities. And here she is affirming another deity and almost commending Orpah for returning to her people and to her gods and advising Ruth to do the same. Now, I'm going to give you Scrabble players another word. Okay, you guys ready? Henotheist. Henotheist. H-E-N-O-T-H-E-I-S-T. Henotheist. It means this. It means that you worship a single God without denying the existence of other deities. Okay, so you worship a single God without denying the existence of other deities. And so from a Moabite perspective, Yahweh was the God of Judah and Israel. But we worship Chemosh. C-H-E-M-O-S-H. You guys are going to just dominate Bible Scrabble. Right, for that Oaks Christmas party, is that on the, on the docket? <laughs> Bible Scrabble? Now, Chemosh is really a, a figure of uh, the theological imagination. There is no real other God. Although, you might make a case that some of these false gods are animated by, by demons in some way. But he was a brutal God. He was brutal. One, one example that we have of the worship of him is found in 2 Kings 3.27 where the king of Moab is revolting against Ahab and the northern kingdom of Israel. 
And the battle is turning against him. He realizes that we are about to lose this thing. And so to turn the tide of the battle, this is what he does. 2 Kings 3.27. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. Did you catch that? Child sacrifice. And there came a great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. So apparently it works. That was the religion of the Moabites, child sacrifice, the God who demanded that. And Naomi wants Ruth to go back to that. It kind of helps you to see why God was punishing Israel to begin with, right? If that was the righteous person in Israel... And so Ruth has a decision to make. And she gives one of the most moving passages in Hebrew history. Now to set it up, look at verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Okay, so here you see an exhortation, a call to return, a reference to your people, and a reference to your gods. And this is how Ruth responds to Naomi. Verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or to, to return from following you. Naomi, stop trying to talk me out of this. Do not ask me to leave you. It's not going to happen. Do not urge me to leave you or return. And what did what did Naomi say? Return to your own land. Don't ask me to return. Don't ask me to return from following you. I'm going. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Are you going to Judah? I'm going to Judah. Are you going to Bethlehem? I'm going to Bethlehem. Are you going to stay at this relative's house? Well, make room for me. I am going with you. And what about the whole business about your peoples and your gods? Verse 16, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. What people? What gods? I hereby renounce my citizenship to Moab. I want your people to be my people. I no longer worship Chemosh. I will worship Yahweh. And then she goes extra. Verse 17, where you die... I will die, and there I will be buried. Unlike Elimelech, she wants to die in the promised land. Right? You can't choose where you're born, but you can choose where you're buried. James Naismith, the world-famous inventor of basketball, was born in Almonte, Canada, but he was buried in Lawrence, Kansas. Just saying. You can't choose where you're born, but you can choose where you're buried. She will be buried in the promised land. She wants to embrace every element of being a part of the people of God and a worship of her God. And then she uses the covenant name of Yahweh for the first time as we see in this passage, at least recorded. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from 
you. She is sealing this Hesed love. A Hesed love that pre-existed this comment, by the way, right? She demonstrated a Hesed love. Naomi refers to it in verse 8. She seals this Hesed love with a covenant, a binding oath. May God do more than kill me if anything but death stops me from fulfilling what I just told you. Now, what do you say to that? What can be said? Verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. I mean, what can you say? This is love without an exit ramp. You look at all that Naomi has experienced. She is a needy widow, a needy, bitter widow. And Ruth is going to give up her people, her family, her gods, her religion. She's going to give up all prospects of having a husband, being a mother to a child and a mother to a son. She's giving all of it up. All of it. To be committed to a bitter, needy widow. Now, isn't that kind of threatening? It's kind of the opposite of of self-fulfillment. To give it all up says something about the quality of her hesed love. For one, her hesed love was loyal. Right now, Naomi's love is expressed in a number of ways. There's there's element of sacrifice. Hey, go on without me, get a better life. There's an element of affection where they're weeping and crying and kissing each other goodbye. But what comes across in this passage as far as the dominant expression of love is loyalty. Now, to be loyal is to have kind of a firm and constant support of someone. It is durable. It is tenacious. You are are loyal. You could be loyal to, to God and country, right? But if God and country ever interfere with each other, you have a difficult choice to make because you have a divided loyalty, right? It's your ultimate loyalty, your ultimate affection, your ultimate commitment to this person or to this institution. And incidentally, loyalty is ridiculed in many ways. It's, It's every dictator's favorite virtue. You need to be loyal to me. It's often seen as the enemy of intellectual exploration or curiosity, And it is true, there's many times when I share my faith with somebody in a false religion and they're they're loyal to their false religion, right? You can't talk them out of it. But there is a, a special disdain that our modern era has for loyalty. Remember the rewrite of the wedding vows? Till death do you part? I mean, come on, that's too much. I read an interesting article today, not today, I read it today, but also a couple of days ago. It just came out. It was a study done in England, or actually it was an article written about um, how many psychiatrists, psychologists, and therapists are noticing an increase in family breakups where families just disintegrate. And it's usually the children who break up with the parents where the children decide they don't want to have a relationship with their parents anymore, even though the parents still want to pursue that relationship. And there's a number of reasons why, um, perhaps past abuse, um, 
but increasingly it's about having value differences or political differences. Now, value differences and political differences have always been there, but has really been amped up lately. And, and as a result, many young people are willing to basically write their parents out of their life. And this is what one author states. He says the reason why. He says, family relationships are going to be based much more on pursuing happiness and personal growth and less on emphasizing duty, obligation, or responsibility. I'll just say that one more time. It's very insightful. Family relationships are going to be based much more on pursuing happiness and personal growth and less on emphasizing duty, obligation, and responsibility. If you want self-fulfillment, if you want mindfulness, self-actualization, if you want to just work on you, and this family relationship is just toxic, I don't care if she's your mother, for your sake, you need to just cut it off. And, and isn't that a temptation, isn't it? I mean, sometimes we go through seasons where family relationships are just difficult. I mean, sometimes Christmas and, and Thanksgiving, you have a sense of dread because I'm going to have to be around that person again. But Hesed Love says you stick to them. You seek to work it out. You endure the awkwardness of that relationship because you have made a commitment to be loyal to them. It means you resolve conflict. It means you go through the pain of forgiveness because forgiveness, I mean, sounds like a great idea until you have to do it. It means you absorb the hurt. You, you, you take it again because you've made a commitment to love them. Hesed love is love without an exit ramp. Now, does this mean that you have to have a special covenant with everybody? <laughs> I would imagine that Ruth and Naomi might have been a little bit different if Ruth was still married. Wives didn't necessarily make vows without the um, agreement of their husband. But that doesn't mean that you can't have this loyalty as a part of your expression of love, where you stick with people. You don't write them off. You're not content with broken relationships. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You love people with loyalty. Secondly, Hesed love is asexual. They are asexual. Ruth and Naomi had a deep love for each other, and there is not a sexual hint in it at all. Now, you guys may know this. I talk about it frequently. We are a Lord of the Rings family. We are a Lord of the Rings family. We didn't go so far as to have Lord of the Rings wedding bands, but I thought about it. I knew not, knew not to ask. But one of the endearing themes of Lord of the Rings is this, the concept of friendship, specifically between Frodo and Sam. And if you type in Frodo and Sam on Google, you know how Google kind of fills in the next word? Do you know what Google will fill in? Frodo and Sam, gay. Frodo and Sam, gay. And it's very uh, common for people to look at that movie and think, well, they must be gay. And that's part of the sexual revolution. It adds an element of sexual intrigue to everything. If you think that the highest form of love is always romantic love, then you don't really have a category for a different kind of love, that the Hesed love, the love of, of commitment. And you look at um, 
the type of love that God wants to develop in the family is to be a pure love, an asexual love. That's one of the reasons why he forbids bids incest. He wants brothers and sisters to love each other in a pure, non-romantic way. And friendship in Scripture is often bound with a hesed love that is decidedly not romantic. And because it's not romantic, it could be deep, effusive, affectionate, right? If, if you see two men who, let's say, shared a bed, poured out their hearts to one another, they wept together, gave verbal affection together. In the modern age, you'd think they're gay, but 3,000 years ago, they were just best friends. That was it. Because homosexuality and homosexual expression was not an option for them, they could be that kind of affectionate with each other. Famous example is David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan. After David defeated Goliath and ran off the Philistines, Saul brings him in so that the royal court can meet him. And, and as soon as Jonathan sees him, this is the response, 1 Samuel 18.1. As soon as he had finished, finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, Jonathan was the crown prince of Israel. He was renowned for his faith in God, his courage in battle. He was to be the heir of Saul's throne. But there was something about David, seeing his courage, his faith, his conviction that just knit his soul to David so that when David won, Jonathan would celebrate. When David was forced to flee, Jonathan would grieve. And at the end of his life, when Jonathan is killed in battle, David eulogizes him in 2 Samuel 1.26 with, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And people will just say, well, there you go. And this is where LGBT and queer theory has, in my opinion, greatly eroded same-sex friendships. Two men hugging each other is assumed to be an act of romantic attraction. And so they will do a queer reading of this book and just say, well, here you go. But what they don't understand is both of them were married. David had multiple wives, and he probably found more refuge in Jonathan than in his home life because he had four wives. <laughs> right? Am I right? But he loved him as a brother. This is a loyal love. And, and just kind of making my case how loyal love, I mean, this is the highest expression of love as opposed to romantic love. Will there be marriage in heaven? No. Matthew twenty two thirty, Jesus says, for in the resurrection they'll neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like the angels in heaven. So what kind of love will we have in heaven? Yeah. And romantic love is great. It is wonderful. But the highest love, the love that we will have for each other in heaven, and the love that God has for his people is hesed love. We'll see in the last point, hesed love is, is optimal. Hesed love is it's more than a feeling. 
Hesed is not a crazy little thing. It's more like, I will always love you. I will always love you. It's the highest expression of love. It's mentioned 246 times in the Old Testament. It's the supreme love of the Lord for his people. The psalmist is saved by Hesed love. Psalm 94, 17 through 18. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. The psalmist is uh, sustained by steadfast love. Psalm 119.88. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of my mouth. The steadfast love of the Lord is abundant. Psalm 119.64. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. We see the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever in 1 Chronicles 16.34. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. It's abundant it lasts forever, it saves, and it sustains. And what else is interesting is it's God's preferred disposition to His people. It is His preferred disposition to His people. Now, we talked about the discipline, love of the Lord, where, where God will discipline His people to bring them into a right relationship with Him so that He can lavish them with Hesed love once again. Hesed love is the default disposition of God for His people. In Isaiah 54, 8, He gives hope to a nation that's being invaded by foreign conquerors, and He says this in Isaiah 54, 8, In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. Right? He, he had anger for a moment. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Anger for a moment, everlasting love. Lamentations 3, 31-32. Jeremiah is looking at the fallen city of Jerusalem, lamenting her state, and he says this, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He's not going to cast you off forever. His disposition is to give you steadfast love. And then we see Naomi, a bitter, bitter woman. Know my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, is it true that God's hand went out against her? You bet. Whose fault is that? It's hers. She's accusing God. When she was the one who decided to stay in Moab, she is the one who married off her sons to Moabite women. And yet, she accuses God of basically reaching down from heaven and slapping her around. But here is Naomi in the company of a Moabite woman who is giving her the highest expression of human love. Do you see what's happening here? Now, I've kind of searched commentaries, done word studies, trying to solve a, one of the primary questions I have about this passage. Why did Ruth do it? 
Why did she bind herself to a bitter woman with no future? Why did she forsake the prospects of marriage and having a husband and having a life? Why did she make this soul-binding covenant with Naomi of all people? You know, often when you, you read Ruth, you always hear about the Christ figure in the, in the book. And the Christ figure would be Boaz, the Redeemer. I think a solid case can be made that it's Ruth who is the Christ figure. In addition to Boaz. But Ruth, through the prompting of the Lord, decides to be used of the Lord to redeem a wayward Israelite, to win her back with Hesed love. Naomi did not deserve this. She tries to push that love away, right? She tries to push away the love of Naomi, and yet Ruth says, I'll have none of it. I will Hesed you. In the same way, all of God's people here and now, the New Covenant people, our disposition has been to push away the Lord, right? But the Lord decided to love you anyway. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, in love, he predestined us for adoptions to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he, was which he has blessed us in the beloved. Right? In eternity past, God decided, I will love you. Not because of anything you have done, not because of any response you would make. He has decided to, to love you, and not only to love you, but to redeem you by sending his son, who's also God, to take the form of human flesh and Jesus did not live for self-fulfillment, did he? He took the lowest form, the form of a servant. He lived a peasant life when he should have been treated like a king. In fact, he wasn't just treated as a peasant. He was treated as a criminal as he was crucified, abandoned, betrayed, and embarrassed, robbed of all dignity because of a loyal commitment to his people. God poured out the wrath intended for you on him, and then God raised him from the dead so that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ can be the beneficiaries of eternal Hesed love. Now, obviously, Hesed love is not in the New Testament because it's written in Greek and not Hebrew. But listen to Romans 8, 35 through 39 in light of this concept of Hesed love. What, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What's the answer to that question? Nothing. Skip forward to verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God didn't send Ruth into your life. He sent Jesus Christ 
to bring Hesed love into your world. So when you look at the greatest love of all, it is the loyal, steadfast love of Hesed given to his people through Christ Jesus. Now, this should create a variety of responses, but it also creates a little bit of an expectation. If you have been loved well, you will love well. If you've been loved well, you will love well. How you have been loved is how you get love. And Jesus, before he was to make the supreme act of Hesed love, told his disciples this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity to be a counter-cultural community. Church is not a place where you come to get self-fulfillment or to discover your better you. Church is a place where you learn to be like Jesus and love like Jesus. And it's very difficult to love like Jesus if you're not around other people to love. (laughs) And sometimes those difficult people in your life, that needy person at church, that person that maybe you had a falling out with, maybe they're not a curse so much as an opportunity for you to impart some of the love that you have received, that Hesed loyal love to somebody else. We don't love other people because they're worthy, just like we're not loved because we're worthy. God has freely decided to love us with a steadfast, loyal love just because he wants to. And this love shows itself in relationship, like the relationship between Ruth and Naomi and the relationship we are to have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are humbled by this example of Ruth and Naomi. Um, it's a love that is frightening. It's a love that seeks commitment. It's a love that demands self-denial. And Lord, it's a love you call us to, but it's also a love that you have loved us with. You have sought to save us, to transform us, and nothing will cause you to forsake us. May we embrace this love, and may we give it to others. In Christ's name, amen.